So before we jump into Ephesians this morning, I want to do this too. So, um, and this is going to maybe shift gears for us just a little bit. I want to just offer up a prayer of lament. So this weekend, I know it's Memorial Day weekend, uh, but uh, on Monday and Tuesday uh, is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre from 1921. And just to give you a little backstory on that, because some of you have never learned about this story. I didn't learn about it until five years ago. I never learned it in history classes or anything. And it was always taught to me as a Tulsa race riot when I first heard it, but the reality is it was really more of a massacre of one race. It wasn't really a riot at all. And in 1921, uh, there was a, a man accused of uh, violating a woman on, a, an, on an elevator. They actually did have a romantic relationship. This is not a true, like that actually didn't happen, but it was pitched as this idea. So they arrest this black man. And the next day, um, the, the black community comes around to you know, argue for his freedom, like he did nothing wrong. And then a group of white men showed up with guns. And next thing you know, there's this massacre that takes place where these white men are deputized by the police to chase them down. And they begin to chase them down. And there's an area there called the Greenwood District. It used to be Black Wall Street's what they called it. Very affluent area, very independent area. And they went torched buildings, destroyed things. There were bombs from the sky. The commission, you go read the commission report, uh, read testimonies of people who survived it, of what happened. And it was a horrific, horrific thing that has largely been silenced over the last hundred years. They're now finding mass graves or looking for these mass graves. They believe there were more like closer to 300 people that died that day. And this was a time where people couldn't go out in the streets freely. In fact, the law was that if a black person was going to be out in the streets, they had to have an ID. And the only way you could get an ID was if a white person vouched for you. This is 1921. It's just 100 years ago. We might say, well, that's ancient history. It's not. Uh, there are still about three survivors that were about six, seven years old that are still alive today. They gave testimony before the Senate recently. And so it is not that far back. And here's the reality. It was a very, very dark day. It was a very, very demonic and evil day. And so I want to just pause for a moment to lament and just grieve before the Lord what happened there. So if you'll just pray with me. Father, you do not take delight in the wicked, in evil practices. This is not how you created things. You created mankind to fill the earth with your glory. And you're not a murderer. You're not racist. You're not evil. But we are. And we have been. Because we've rebelled with the rebellious one. Who has established a counter kingdom on this earth to your kingdom purposes to bring destruction on the Imago Dei, the image of God, to thwart your purposes to fill the earth with your glory so that mankind would fill the earth with its own glory, which is really a reflection of the one that we've bowed down to, Satan himself. And it is seen in violent, evil acts like what took place in Tulsa in 1921. And if that was the only thing we were grieving today in this country's history, it would be enough and should be enough to bring us to our knees. But sadly, it's not. 
Things are not the way they're supposed to be, God. I stand here as a white man coming from a heritage of white men before me that had the opportunity to do what was right. And some did, and many did not. And we bring that before you, God, not to carry the shame, not to carry the guilt, but to bring it before you, acknowledging that it is a shameful and guilt-ridden thing. And to cry out for justice that only you can truly give. And injustice, remembering your mercy. So Lord, as a hundred years is remembered of a horrific massacre, I pray it would be a time where we lament and we grieve our country's dark past that still affects our present and commit ourselves again today to the kingdom of God and to the glorious gospel of the kingdom of God. And may we be known as a people who reflect your glory in the earth, not the color of our skin or our culture or our government or our country or any of those things, but Jesus. We pray it in Christ's glorious name. Amen. Amen. At the end of the service, we're going to read a benediction together. It's Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Now, that last phrase, your saving power among all nations, is where I want to focus our attention this morning. So I've titled this sermon, Saving Power. We are in a seven-week series, if you're new with us, uh, on spiritual warfare and life in the Holy Spirit. We're going through the book of Ephesians, just doing a chapter at a time. Now, there's only six chapters in Ephesians, so that's six weeks. And the last week, we're going to kind of bring it all together, looking at Jesus as King and what that means. When we talk about spiritual warfare, a lot of times we get into the fantastical, right? Uh, we want to talk about uh, these you know, dreams and visions of powerful demons and this and this war going on. Or we want to talk about the miraculous and things like that and, and exorcisms maybe. Maybe you're all the poltergeist people. Which some of you are too young to even know what that is. Some of you are old enough to remember what that is. Um, but there's, there's, these, there's this fascination with that kind of stuff, right? And so uh, we want to get into that. And, and it seems almost unreal how you know, some of that stuff is. And so what we wanted to do in this series was actually start helping us wrap our heads around the fact that spiritual warfare is not always this fantastical stuff. It's happening daily. We live in this waging war. Like the war is being waged all day, every day. It's been going on since the beginning. Dusty Thompson, who's the pastor of Redeemer Lubbock uh, and helped plant us, he preached here a few summers ago. And one of the things he talked about was how every square inch of Stillwater, every square inch of the planet is contested ground. Meaning we're not just going to walk in, like we were going to walk into Stillwater, plant a church, and all this amazing stuff was going to happen. People are getting saved left and right, do all this other stuff without there being any sort of conflict, any sort of war, any sort of pushback, things like that. And so we live in this waging war, but I want to talk about the phrase saving power and then among all nations, okay? So the word saving there has to do with rescue or deliverance. Now, if we isolate text of the Bible, which is very, very common, okay? We isolate text of the Bible and we try to say, this is what salvation is. It's just deliverance. It's just rescue. 
That's not all salvation is. You need to understand the whole story. From Genesis to Revelation, we understand that salvation is not just a future destination. It's not rescuing us from earth and taking us to heaven. It's not delivering us from this to this. Rescue and deliverance actually takes place now, and there is a future reality to it. But that's not all salvation is. We talk about this often here, that salvation actually has to do, if, if the, the fullness of it has to do with our wholeness, our being made perfect, being made complete in Christ Jesus so that we might rightly reflect and glorify God again. So that's what it means for saving, right? So he wants, he's praying, the psalmist is praying that your saving power would be known among the nations, among all peoples, right? But that power, that second word power, I want to talk about that word real quick. Power has to do with ability, Okay, so it's not power like I'm just super strong. Like just because you're physically fit, that doesn't mean you can do everything. Just because you're super strong doesn't mean you can do everything, right? I don't even know who the strongest person is here. We'll just say it's me. And you're all like, hey, Brian, break that tree. And I'm like, guys, just because I'm the strongest one here doesn't mean I can break the tree. I could probably break the tree because I'm also the heaviest person here, but don't worry about that. I take that as strength, but it's not just like we, we think in terms of power and sometimes it does. It means something that's this overwhelming force, but really the word has to do with ability. The interesting thing you need to understand about saving power is that that power only belongs to God. No one here, no one on the planet has the power to save themselves. You don't have that ability. You don't have the ability to save someone else either. We do not have that power, the this, this saving that he's talking about here. We don't have that ability. That's why the psalmist is praying that your saving power be known among the nations, that the whole earth would know of your saving power, a power that none of us carries, but a power that you have and that he actually uses, meaning he saves. That last phrase, among all the nations, your saving power among all the nations, now, as Americans, we hear that word nations and we think countries. We think geopolitical nation, you know, national boundaries and stuff like that. That's, the, that's foreign to the scriptures. Okay? That is a modern phenomenon that the Bible does not understand. The word nations is going to be really our word. It's the word ethnos in Greek, but it's the ethnic groups, people groups of the planet. Of which today they estimate about 17,000 people groups on planet Earth. Now, what we've done is we've taken those people groups, and some of them, they all can fit into one country, but many of them uh, fit in multiple countries because we've spliced everything up and said, okay, part of you, like the Kurds, for example. The Kurds live in Syria. They live in Iran. They live in Iraq. They live in Az Azerbaijan. They live in Turkey. They live in all that area, but there used to be a place called Kurdistan, and that's where the Kurds lived, right? If you go to Nigeria, Nigeria is home to 400 ethnic groups. So as Americans, we always send out our support letters. You know, like, I'm going to Nigeria this summer and I'm going to learn Nigerian and I'm going to eat Nigerian and everything else. And Thomas, my brother, who's from Nigeria, Thomas will just laugh at you like he's laughing at me right now. Because it's like, bro, there's no such thing as that. That's crazy talk. China, 500 ethnic groups there. Everybody, I'm going to go learn Chinese. There's a good chance there you are because yeah, it's the main languages and there's a billion of them. But there's 500 different ethnic groups there. Now, I, we go do this with every country. I can start showing you all the ethnic groups. When God says he wants his saving power known among the nations, he's talking about those peoples. It's the same peoples that Jesus talks about when he says, go make disciples of all the nations. The people groups, the ethnic groups. Ephesians 2, which we're going to jump into here. Ephesians 2 is a 22 verse chapter 
that basically is Psalm 67, one and two explained, like just drawn out a little bit more. You're gonna see all this come to life there. So I've chosen Psalm 67, one and two because it's our benediction. So when we read it together at the end, I want it to sit differently with you than just reading words or just reading a Psalm. I want you to think because Psalm, or Ephesians two is gonna help us understand Ephesians two and Ephesians two is gonna help us understand Psalm 67. And I wanna do this real quick. So I do this often, and um, I'm going to turn my Bible over to so the page. I know it's like weird. You're like, did he just turn his Bible over? I'm turning my back on it. It turned its back on me. Anyway, here's what I want to do real quick. I, I do this often here at Redeemer. I try to walk us through all the Bible to understand the whole story, okay? So we're going to do that real fast. I'm not going to go through all of it. I'm just going to catch us up to Ephesians here. Because there's something we have to understand if we're really going to grab hold of what's going on in Ephesians 2, and as it relates to spiritual warfare and life in the Spirit. We have to understand this idea of kingdom. Now, if you've been at Redeemer at all, you've heard us talk about the kingdom of God. This is something we harp on often because if you don't understand kingdom, you're not gonna understand the fullness of salvation. You're not gonna understand the fullness of what it means to be the church. And it's extremely problematic in a country that has often tied itself to the country, which creates this Christian nationalism, which the Bible abominates. It hates it. It's not real. It's not a thing. It's a faux kingdom. It's not an actual kingdom. We belong to the kingdom of God. So when our country's out of bounds, we don't go out of bounds with them. That's what we're supposed to do. And where our country's right, we can honor that. We can respect that because we are a kingdom people first. So we've got to understand kingdom. But in order to understand the, the spiritual side of things, we have to understand the counter kingdom that exists as well. So in Genesis chapter one, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates all these things. And here's what he does. He creates the sun and the moon and he gives them authority, it says, over the day and the night. So crazy talk here, but the sun and the moon have power. In a sense, they're spiritual beings. They're beings that, that God has created to rule the day and to rule the night. That's what the Bible says in Genesis 1. But then God says he makes mankind and he makes him after his own image. And it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, fill the earth and have dominion, kingdom, dominion over all creation. So right out of the gate, God has set to establish his kingdom on the earth, which is a kingdom in which we fill the earth with image bearers who are in right relationship to God. Thus, we are rightly reflecting God's rule and reign. We are reflecting who he is back to him. We're like mirrors filling the earth that our, our glory goes up to him and what comes back to us is our good. And you see this happen. This is what was set out at the beginning in Genesis chapter one. Now, also what's taking place in Genesis chapter one is there's these unseen spiritual forces and beings that are also there. We're not going to be introduced to them until Genesis 3, really, but we know that they're there. God, who's created all things, has created these beings as well. In Genesis 3, we meet one of them. This little serpent comes up to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Says, did God really say, don't eat from any fruit? And they said, no, he just said, don't eat from this one. And he says, God knows that if you eat of it, you're going to be like him, knowing good and evil. And he's telling the truth. Can I just terrify you real quick? Satan knows the truth. He's a liar, but he knows what he's doing. So he's manipulating, right? He's taking what is true and he's, he's turning, he's twisting, he's spinning it a little bit. So he takes what's true because we know God says later on in Genesis 3, now they've become like me, knowing good and evil. 
That's how we know what Satan said was true. But Satan said something that was true, but he said it in a way that was spinning it and not putting it in its proper context. So Adam and Eve eat from it because it's desirous for gaining wisdom. It's a delight to their eyes and they eat. And what they do in this moment, now listen, they've been created as God's vice regents to rule and reign on the earth. And Tyler talked about this a few series ago. What they basically did in that moment is they gave their allegiance over, not to God any longer, but to Satan himself. And they joined the rebellion and the rebellious kingdom, the counter kingdom to God's kingdom, and all mankind fell with them. So that every man, woman, and child who is born on the earth is born in sinful rebellion. If you don't have that, <laughs> you're not gonna understand the good news. We, I try to say this so often. What makes the good news such amazingly good news is that the bad news is such terribly bad news. We've got to understand how bad the bad news is or the good news is just something like, like I think most Christians in America, especially in our context here, I think the good news is just a tack on to their already good lives. Like I'm not quite good enough, so I'll add Jesus in to fill the rest. There's a whole religion that's been formed around that. It's called Mormonism. It's what they believe. After everything you can do to save yourself, Jesus will fill out the rest. That's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are in open rebellion. We've joined the rebellious spiritual forces of evil in this world. And what took place after that is mankind began to try to establish its glory on the earth, not God's glory. That's why we get to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Now, if you've ever paid attention to the Tower of Babel, it's an interesting story. Because at the Tower of Babel, God, who's already commanded mankind to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, he's commanded them to do that three times before Genesis 11 takes place. In Genesis 1, 28, Genesis 9, 1, and Genesis 9, 7. Go back and read it. Don't, don't believe me? Go see God telling them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In Genesis 11, they're like, Nah, that, we're cool. We're gonna, we found a place in Shinar. We can make good beer here. Shinerbach, Shinerbach, that was a good one. It's really not where they made it, just so you know. It's called Shiner, Texas. Anyway, so they get to this plane and they say, man, let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens. That's a spiritual warfare marker. Don't hear oh, they're building the first like super tower and they're gonna have a downtown. No, 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 no. This is a spiritual warfare moment. This is them basically building a middle finger to God. That's a better way of looking at it. We don't need you. We've got this. We're gonna do our own thing. They speak the same language. They have the same culture, customs, everything else. The whole world, they're gonna be the envy of the world. We're gonna show what we're all about and we have access. We can approach heaven on our own at any time we want. That's what they're going for here. This is an absolute rebellious act to God and his kingdom. And the spiritual forces are a part of this. Now, when God comes down, here's what I find interesting. He says he looks at it and he's grieved, right? And he comes down and says, let us, there's a plural there, confuse their language. So he does. And he scatters them from there over the face of the whole earth. Now, who has all the power in this scenario? The ones building the tower that think they're awesome or the one that just came down, confused their language and split them up? God. 
You see, so mankind is trying to do this stuff and in one fell swoop, God had the power to come down and change their languages. We know it's about 70 different distinct language groups that they're formed. You read about them in Genesis chapter 10. They're now spread out over the whole earth, meaning God gets what he wants. He's filled the earth now with people, his image bearers, but they're not right image bearers anymore. They're corrupted image bearers because of the sin. There's corruption now. They do not reflect God's glory in the earth, but the whole earth is full of his image bearers now. But how is God in this thing? Because the spiritual forces are at play in this thing too. Luring them away, begging for their work, calling them to their worship. They're in full allegiance. All mankind is in allegiance with Satan and his forces, whether they feel like they are or not. And here's God's solution. In Genesis 12, he takes this man, Abram, who wanted nothing to do with God. And he says to Abram, I want you to leave your country, your people, and your father's household. And I want you to go to the land that I'll show you. That's a bold request. But then he makes this amazing promise. He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And he said, I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all, here it is, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You know what God's response is to the open rebellion of mankind? It's good news. It's the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 3.8 that God announced the gospel beforehand to Abram when he said, in you all peoples on earth will be blessed. And he goes back and quotes Genesis 12.2 and 3. And what he says is that's God announcing the gospel beforehand. This is good news. Here's the solution. Here's the answer to the powers that be. Here's the solution and answers to Satan who has dominion right now, who has power over this present darkness. This is the solution. I'm breaking in with a message. Just like God used words to create all things, he's using words to to transform people's lives, to rescue them. This is the saving power that he has is that this good news is gonna be announced to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. This is gonna be good news proclaimed to every nation, tribe, people, and language that, the God, that God has come himself and he's personally doing something about it. He's gonna rescue. And this is to establish his kingdom on the earth as he goes and declares a, a, an attack on the counter kingdom that the whole world is part of. Now, taking that, we're going to get into Ephesians 2, because I need you to understand these first three verses, how bad, how terribly bad the bad news is. Okay, we're going to see what this counter kingdom has looked like for us and why the good news is such great, amazing news and powerful news. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, now let's stop there for just a second. What's going on here? You're gonna see, you're gonna see about three or four things going on here, okay? One, this is all in past tense. Why that is, is because Paul's writing to the church, already saved people, and he's reminding them of who they were. But in reminding them of who they were, he is talking about who all mankind is without Christ, okay? So he starts off with it. So he starts out with the past tense, right? But he has these things. One, that you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. 
Two, you're following the course of this world. Three, you're following the power of this, uh, the prince of this air. And four, you have these passions and desires of your flesh that are causing you to, to walk in disobedience and to lead to your death, right? So I wanna walk through these real quick. He says, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. The word for trespasses uh, is really our word for rebellion. And it's our, it's our actual acts of sin. It's our acts of rebellion. So it's not just in our minds, everything else. It's actually the things that we do. And yes, our minds and hearts are all part of that but it's actually these acts of rebellion. He says, you're dead to God in those things. Now, we're not physically dead. But what he is saying is that in relation to God, who is life, you are dead because you have no connection to God. Therefore, you, are, you got a mind and a body and all these things, but you have no connection to God. You are spiritually dead in your sins, which is our sinful nature and our trespasses, which is the outward acts of our sinful nature. You're dead. Now, <clears throat> I don't know when the last time was you visited a morgue. Maybe never. But one thing you learn about dead people is they have no ability to do anything. They don't have an ability. They have no power. If they do, if something happens and they come back up, you get out of there as fast as you can. Like nobody's lingering there like, oh, he came back up, knock him out. You know, it's like, it's not Monty Python. You know, I'm not quite dead yet. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you, so like if they're there, they're dead and they have no ability. They have no power. There's nothing left in there, right? So spiritually, what he is saying is you are dead. You have no power. You have no ability, spiritually speaking. You're dead. And the trespasses and sins in which, in, once, in which you once walked. Walked has to do with your manner of life. It's just who you are. This is who you were. A sinful rebellion, uh, a sinful rebellious creation. Here's how that rebellion played out. You followed the course of the world. That word following in the Greek, is two words put together. And the words put together actually are kind of like in one accord. So you kind of fell in line with the course of this world. The course of this world is not earth. It's not talking about planet earth. It's talking about this age. Some use the word age, the course of this age. And the world is actually talking about our societies and cultures, the influence of the world. What Paul would say in Corinthians we'd looked at is the wisdom of this world, right? So God's plan to, to rescue is actually foolishness to the world. It's not how anyone would see power and understand power, but what the world, world's wisdom is, if we're to walk according to that, to, to be in one accord with the course of this world is what that is saying, that we're in line, we're unified as one. Now that's interesting because you look at America, for example, and we're the land of individuality and everyone's individual expressions. And I, I, this is me, no one tells me who I am. But what the Bible is saying is that as individual as you think you are, we're all walking in one accord following the course of this world. That's how our rebellion works. We're not each rebellious on our own. We are rebellious because our allegiance is not with, with God. Our allegiance is with Satan. Now, I'm sure a lot of you grew up thinking about that, right? Like, man, I feel like my allegiance is to Satan. Hail Jesus, we're, you know, hail Satan, and let's do all that. No, no one thought that way. None of you, no one could go talk to someone right now as a non-believer and be like, so what's it like following your God, uh, Satan? You'd be like, what are you talking about? Is this another QAnon conspiracy? Okay, 
what does this mean then? It means that as humanity, we have fallen in line with the power of the prince of this earth, which is what the next point is. We're in one accord with the power or the prince of the power of this air. That word air is literally talking about the sky. There was this belief that the, the spirits were in kind of the sky level of all things. There were these different levels of heaven and this would be their level. But the whole point, and Jesus affirms this when he calls Satan the prince of this age. What Jesus is saying is that basically when, when uh, Satan took Jesus up on the temple mountain and said, hey, you know, all the kingdoms of the world, you see them all? He says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give them all to you. And he's telling him the truth. He had the power to give him all the kingdoms of the world because they all belong to Satan. Now I know we're all thinking like, yeah, like Egypt and Rome and Babylon and the Turks and the Mongols and America. <gasps> oh, yes. He has all the kingdoms of the world under his power. And he says to Jesus, if you bow down, I'll give them all to you. And Jesus says, no, you worship the Lord your God. And we're not to have other gods and goddesses and things that we worship. And Satan goes away. But to follow the prince of the power of the air means we're in one accord and one allegiance to Satan and his counter kingdom. This is who we were without Christ and who we are if you don't have Christ today. It doesn't mean you're a Satan worshiper. It doesn't mean you even know. It just means you're following in line with it because he controls the power. Now, here's what some people have wanted to do with this. Some have argued post-enlightenment, and this is a dangerous thing. Post-enlightenment, people have started to argue, scholars, Bible scholars, theologians have started to argue that what Paul is doing here for the Ephesians is demythologizing the spirit realm. What they're saying is that the powers that he's actually talking about are the systems and structures that run everything. So the government and everything else that they're saying, it's not about the spiritual powers. It, that, that stuff's not real. And Paul was trying to demythologize that and say, no, it's the, it's the government powers. It's the ruling powers. It's those folks. That's what Paul's really getting at. The problem is going to be when we get to Ephesians 6. Like, this is going to be a huge one. He says, our war is not against flesh and blood. So if our war was not against flesh and blood, how can we go to war against the powers that are systems and structures if the power is not really a flesh, our war is not really flesh and blood? It becomes problematic. But what you not, I do not want you to hear me say is that systems and structures cannot be evil. Here's why they can be evil. Because what he's saying is that the, the, the prince of the power of the air that's at work right now in the sons of disobedience is that means every system and structure that's set up, Satan has power, influence, the ability to influence. That's his power. He has the ability to influence things that can happen, that can be evil and that can lead people astray and continue this rebellion against God. Here's a case in point. Anytime you find a system or structure or policy or anything else that's in place that is dehumanizing, okay? Dehumanizing. I, it, you, without a shadow of a doubt, I don't need to give you any scripture text to say that says if it's dehumanizing, it's this. You can read the whole Bible and it, I will tell you right now, it is 100% demonic influence behind it. Why that's important, because we, <clears throat> I really don't want to get in trouble. We've got to understand this. If we're going to be missionaries in our context. America's founding had demonic influence. There, I said it. 
You can't escape it. That doesn't mean God's not part of it. That doesn't mean God's not here. He's, he doesn't quit being sovereign. But you've got to understand that our founding was dehumanizing toward black people, Native Americans, women, and children, and white poor. That's historical fact. It's all there. You can go read it. Where does that come from? Not God. This is how it plays out, though. In the 1920s, when Margaret Sanger comes on with eugenics and begins what became Planned Parenthood, it's dehumanizing. We can talk all day about what causes abortions and why, when they might be necessary, or how they might, what, we can debate all that. At the end of the day, abortion is a way of dehumanizing. It's a way of saying it's a blob of cells. We dehumanize what God has already said. He formed it in its mother's womb. You have to deal with that. That's demonic influence. Now, what we want to do is everybody will go around and go, yeah, finally, he's, sounds Republican again. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't really give a, <sighs> we've got to be kingdom people. Get rid of the R and the D, get rid of it. It's useless for you. Be a kingdom person. Understand that there are demonic forces at play all around us. There have been policies passed in this country that are demonic. There are systems and structures in place that are demonic. Not because the system itself is demonic, but because of the power of the prince of this air who influences it, the sons of disobedience. And there are things that we can disagree about we don't all have to land on the same page on every single thing. I know there's nuance to abortion. There's nuance to our founding. There's nuance to all that stuff. Please hear me. I understand all that. We can debate that privately. We can go one-on-one -on -one with all that stuff. But what you can't deny is that there has been demonic influence in our country and right here in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And he is at work right now in the sons of disobedience and the daughters, since we're being equal. Was that, that was probably not funny, but felt like we just, anyway. But he says this, we all once lived with them in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. And listen, we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There is not a person on the planet that deserves God's salvation or grace or mercy. We're children of wrath. Now, just to hammer this home, let's look at verse 11. Therefore, remember at, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Listen to this. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That sounds encouraging, doesn't it? You're cut off, you're alienated, you have no hope, and you have God, God is no longer with you. God's not with you. 
Now that's for the Gentiles. He's speaking very specifically, right? He's not talking about everybody. But he is saying basically what he said there at the beginning of, of chapter two. He's echoing it again. This is the reality that we are cut off from God. We have no relationship with him. We're alienated. We're cut off from the covenant of promises. We have no hope and we're without God in the world. Do you hear how terribly bad the bad news is? Like, is everyone like feeling really excited about life right now? I hope I've deflated everything. Like Dante's father, he has a Super Bowl ring because of Deflategate. He deflated the footballs. I found that out right before the service. He told me a different story, but I'm going with Deflategate. And the ring's not real, I found out either. Thanks, Dante. Made me look like a fool. But anyway. I hope you feel a little deflated. I hope you're feeling a little down right now. I hope this is sobering for us. I hope we're looking at this and having to wrestle with the fact that this is who we were without Christ. But remember the title of the sermon today. It's saving power. The, uh, Psalm 67, 2 says, your saving power be known on the earth. The, the, the psalmist was wanting the whole world to know, every nation, tribe, people, and language, that this is how awful and evil everything is. But there's good news. There's saving power for all the nations. There's one who has the ability to save. He doesn't have to do it, though. He doesn't owe us that. But this is who he is. He's the God who pursues. He's the God who loves. He's the God who saves. He's the God that comes after us when none of us wanted anything to do with him, when all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the air, following our disobedience, children of wrath, turned aside from God, wanting nothing to do with him. He steps in to our massive mess of humanity, takes on the human flesh, and he does something for us. Look at verse four, ready? Here's where it gets really, really, really good news. But God. God. But God, oh, here we go. We got one with power now. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Whoo! Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Even when we were powerless to do anything, nor did we even have the desire to do anything. What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. That's right. Who let the saving power out? Who, 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 okay. I'm gonna miss being outside. Not gonna get things like that. Amen. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, let's stop right there, right? We're all pumped up, excited now. It's like, good, the good news. Phew, finally, we're all terrible people. We're in rebellion. We love Satan. We're worshiping Satan. And all of a sudden, but God, because of his great mercy and because of his great love with which he's loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Amen. We're all alive. Woo! And that would be enough. Right? That would be enough. But it's not done yet. And raised us up with him. Okay? Now we're resurrected. So he's made us alive and he's raised us up with the resurrected Christ. We are raised in Christ. We have the resurrection power of Christ now. Woo! Okay, hold on. We're not done yet though. 
this is gonna tie into last week's sermon, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. <gasps> okay, this is fun. Like this is where it gets really exciting, okay? We've just talked about how all mankind's in rebellion. We're children of wrath. We are following the course of this world. We're following the prince of the power of this air. We are sons of disobedience and daughters of disobedience. We're children of wrath. We want nothing to do with God, but God steps in in his great mercy. By grace, you've been saved with the great love with which he has loved us. They emphasize that great love with which he has loved us. This amazing, powerful love. And what God has done with that, he didn't just make you alive with Christ. No, he raised you up with Christ. And now he has seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. Now that means nothing to you right now, but let's go back real quick and read from chapter one, starting in verse 20, where he says this, this is the power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. So the power of God seated Christ at the right hand of the father, meaning his work is done in the heavenly places. Okay, great. Now look what happens. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And here's what happens next far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. Did you hear that? You are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Far above all rule, far above all authority, far above all dominion, far above all their powers, far above every name that is named in this life and in the life to come. You, me, Christians everywhere, seated in the heavenly places with Christ, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Man, when we talk about spiritual warfare and we get all the fantastical, we're like, we live in fear. We live these powerless lives as Christians. And I think it's evidenced by the fact that we over contextualize, I think sometimes. Like we think that we, we look at like Starbucks or McDonald's or Chick-fil-A, these companies that have just, man, look at they're everywhere. And we try to emulate that. Like, how do we become big like that? How do we grow like that? How do we do all these things? There's great things you can learn from the business world. There are great things you can learn from all that stuff. That's not the power of God. You don't need the power of God to do that. If you did, then all these non-believing companies and leaders wouldn't be doing these things. You don't, God has given us in ourselves as image bearers of God, the ability to do certain things. We're to be creative. We're to do things that are business. This is what's so beautiful. It's like some of you, some of you need to consider your job and go, how do I further the kingdom of God through my work and do good work? I guess the most kingdom impactful thing you could do is just be a good employee, be a good businessman or businesswoman, go get a really good job. Maybe go to a place that doesn't even know the gospel and go, man, I'm going to work hard for the kingdom of God by working hard at my job. Everybody thinks they got to raise money and go join mission agencies. No, you don't. And you're hearing from the guy that that's all I've done since I graduated college was raise money and work in the church or nonprofit organizations. And it's spiritual warfare what you're doing. Because you're seated in the heavenly places with Christ, far above all rule and power and dominion and authority. But do you believe that? We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That means this. We're no longer, that's why Paul can say in the past tense, 
We no longer follow the course of this world. We no longer follow the power of the prince of the air who's at work in the sons of disobedience because now we're the sons and daughters of obedience. The greatest picture of the power of God in the life of a person, you ready? This is the greatest evidence is a transformed life, not spiritual gifts. Do I need to say that louder for the charismatics in the back? Well, the Baptists would be in the back. They don't care about the gifts anyway. Is that too honest? The greatest evidence of the power of God in your life and the life of any other person is not what spiritual gifts you have. It's not what position you hold in a church. It's not what title you get. It's none of that. Man, we are so hungry for power. We want the allure of power. We love power. Everybody wants to be an elder. Everybody wants to be a deacon. Everybody wants to be a president. Everybody wants to be whatever. Fill in the blank. Doesn't matter. We'll fight over that stuff. Why? The real power is in a transformed life. And that's a power that we have access to every single day. Why? Verse 20, or 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. Remember, we were cut off. We were strangers and aliens. No longer. But you are fellow citizens with the, with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows together into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. If you don't understand that God is Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the gospel is really hard to understand because what we see here is God the Father is rich in mercy and love and in his rich mercy and rich love, while we were still dead in our trespasses and sin, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly laid down his life on our behalf. The son, Jesus Christ, took our sin and our shame, our open rebellion, brought it on himself, became the curse on our behalf, according to Galatians 3, took the wrath of God, died, buried, rose from the dead by the power of God three days later, ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now who indwells every believer is a guarantee of our inheritance that is to come according to Ephesians chapter one. That guarantee of the inheritance that we have is called the Holy Spirit of God who is at work right now in the members of his body, building us up together to be a home for God's presence, that God is now with us once again. And not only that, the spirit of God is at work in the lives of men and women who trust Jesus Christ alone for salvation, making them every day more and more like Christ. This is why we preach the gospel every single Sunday. We will not stop every gospel community, every DNA. We are pushing gospel, 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 gospel. Why? Because Romans 1.16 tells us this. The power of God, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. According to 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 24, it is the power of God for those who believe. Those who trust this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is power. It's not just power to get you to heaven, hang on, uh, hold your breath until you die, because you will die, by the way, if you hold your breath. But it, it's not that. It's the power of God every single day in your life, because every day there's an onslaught from the enemy that's not, they can't do anything to you, but they can make you ineffective. They can lull us to sleep. We can fight one another. Come on, let's do this, right? Let's get down. What, hey, let's do it. You want to fight about women in the church? Let's do it. How about Calvinism? That's always been a good one. Come on, right? And here's the thing. 
You don't have to do it. You can leave our church and go to another one as soon as you don't like us. Amen? I thought about leaving three times this week. I don't like some of you. That's not true. I'm saying it for effect, trying to be dramatic. But some of you are getting close. Zach and Melissa, who just told us today they're moving away, like that's a thing. No, here's the deal. The Father has loved us so much, the Son has loved us so much, the Spirit has loved us so much that together they have worked for our rescue, for our transformation, to make you truly holy human as you were created to be. But we lost it in the garden. And Jesus is restoring it and redeeming it. Now, the last phrase of all nations. As we're going to bring it home, you ready? Saving power among all nations. Look at verse 13. Because here's the second part of this good news, right? We had the first but, now we get the second but. And I'm not going to talk about, oh, this is the biggest but in the Bible. There's two of them, so I don't. <laughs> Come on, girls, let's be mature. 2 verse 13. But now, man, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our shalom, our peace, our wholeness, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create, get this, you cannot miss this, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making shalom, peace, wholeness, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace, shalom, wholeness, the gospel to you who were far off and peace, shalom, wholeness, the gospel to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There was a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles were cut off. They had no access to the promises of God. We just read that. But in Christ, but in Christ, the Gentiles, who is the one name to sum up all people groups that aren't Israel, okay? In Christ, God has now made known his saving power to all nations. And in Christ, Jew and Gentile are no longer Jew and Gentile. In Christ, they have become one new man. Now you see that and you go, why has it got to be a man? Calm down. That literally means one new humanity. One new mankind. What did Jesus do? He created another human. He created another humanity. So that those who belong to Christ, there are only two real races on the planet. There's the human race without Christ and the human race because of Christ. That's it. Now, I know we created the social race thing, whatever. To create, look, it ties in with ethnicity around the world. And this stuff's been going on for centuries. This partiality, this hatred of others and everything else. Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He killed the hostility with his gospel of peace, his gospel of shalom, his gospel of wholeness, completeness that you only have in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> So if you don't believe in Jesus this morning, you don't have this. But can I tell you some really good news? Today's the day of salvation. 
And if you wake up tomorrow because the Lord gives you that, tomorrow's the day of salvation if you reject him today. If you don't hear it, but I'm pleading with you if you don't know Jesus this morning to put your hope and trust in Christ alone. But here's the thing. This is God's saving power among the nations. This means this. If we're not declaring the gospel message, which is the power of God to save all who believe, then we are showing that we love ourselves more than our neighbors. I'm afraid that the reason we're not a very evangelistic church, that we're not a very gospel preaching church outside of our context, or maybe within a few, is because we don't actually believe that this has the power to transform people's lives. I want you to go meet Virgil after this. Sorry, Virg, they're all going to flood you, but you're vaccinated, so you'll be all right. Was that a HIPAA violation? Sorry. So Virgil... Virgil, I love Virgil. Virgil and I have this guy, like, this guy is a testimony of the power of the gospel to transform a life. Go ask him about it. And then be prepared to close your ears on a few of his past events. You know, things he wants to talk about. Like, oh, Virgil. He will tell you right now, he has personal testimony right now of how the gospel is transforming his life. Do you believe the gospel has the power to change people's lives, to save their lives? Then stop withholding. Leverage your relationships at work. Get to know your neighbors. Have them over for a cookout. Just let them talk. Listen, they might say all kinds of things. I can't tell you how many people just say every kind of vulgar thing around me. And I just kind of, and then I join in with them. I'm just kidding. Are we, are we doing that now? No, that, that, no, I just, they're talking. I just want to listen. We've got to be better at listening. That's half the, that's like three-fourths of sharing the gospel. Just listen well. Ask good questions. Let them be honest, even when you don't like it. I hate these people. Okay. Why? I hate the church. Yeah, me too, man. What? what? Well, no. <laughs> Me? I hate pastors. Yeah. No, we got to listen though. As a church, do we believe we have the power of the Holy Spirit of God at work in us? That's what the whole Acts 1-8 thing is. Everybody loves Acts 1-8. Well, I'm going to reach my Jerusalem, then my Judea, then my Samaria, then my ends of the earth. That's not even what it says. It doesn't say then. It says and. It means all at the same time. But he says right before, the thing we really need to focus on is I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. You're going to have the power of the Holy Spirit to be what? Oh my gosh. What do you have the power of the Holy Spirit to be? Gee whiz. I thought doing a spiritual warfare thing, we might get a little more charismatic. I can't even get you just to answer the word in the Bible. Witnesses, martus, martyrs. <gasps> It doesn't mean you're going to die for your faith. You have the power of the Holy Spirit of God to bear witness to the saving power that we pray would be known among all nations. How are you doing reaching the nations with the saving power of Jesus? You say, well, Brian, we live in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Blake, roughly 2,000 international students here. I could have asked Randy, but notice who I went to. Just wanted that to be known. 
from all over the world. Okay, so there's a start, right? How about people that don't vote like you? Now, now we're getting into it, right? You ever have them over for a meal? You ever talk to a woman who's had an abortion and just had her over, hear her story? Or did you just go protest at the abortion meal or whatever they call them now? You got your thoughts on homosexuality. You ever had someone over to your house? You ever befriended them? You ever welcomed them into your home, shown hospitality? How are we gonna make the saving power of Christ known among the nations if we're just hanging out with ourselves? People that vote like us, eat like us, drink like us, walk like us, talk like us, do everything just like us. It's gonna take a lot of humility to see others as more significant as your, than yourselves and to believe that the power of God can actually transform their lives. Not to make them like you so they can fit in your inner circle, but they can redeem them right where they're at in their context and their culture. <laughs> like they don't have to become white middle-class Americans to get saved. Acts 15 settled that for us. They need to believe in Jesus. They didn't have to vote a certain way to get, become a Christian. Praise God for that, because I don't vote anymore. It's dumb. I can't handle it. That's not entirely true. Do we believe that the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes? And do you believe that that same gospel is the power that you have every single day for your own salvation, the fullness of your salvation? And do you believe that your brothers and sisters in Christ need to hear and see the gospel on display and declared through gospel communities, DNA groups, just through random interactions throughout the week? Or are we gonna be a powerless people? Dependent on marketing strategies, a building which we thank God for the one he provided. That's what I tell everybody. Oh yeah, God is the architect of our building. Satan's the architect of the ticks that you all have walking up your feet right now, but don't worry about that. Bruce agrees with me. It's the one thing I found he hates that's an insect, so. Can I just pray for us? That was how I planned to end it too with that Bruce line, so just so everybody knows. <laughs> Father, when we first moved here, I remember just statistics alone showing that some 60 to 70% of our city on any given Sunday doesn't go to church. They don't, they're done. They don't want to go to church. They're done with it all. And Father, we don't want to just be another church in town. I, I, we don't, I'm not like, I don't think many of us here have aspirations of being a mega church. I, I think probably the people that are here because they're tired of mega churches. And that's not a knock on them. It's just not, it's hard. But just because we get big or just because it doesn't mean, God, that we get to pat ourselves on the back, we get to promote our strategies and our ways of doing things. God, I want, I want the marker for Redeemer Church 
to be a church that is known for your presence. It's known for your power. Because the amazing thing about that benediction that we're going to read is right before it says your saving power among the nations, it says that your way may be known on the earth. Your way is counter to the course of this world. And your power is counter to the power of this air. Meaning that if we're going to be your people, we're going to be a people that live counter to the culture around us. That live counter to the world around us. That we're a people that are not just supposed to be righteous, but we're supposed to be just. And we're supposed to be loving and we're supposed to be holy and we're supposed to be reflecting your glory in the world. We're supposed to be a kingdom people and we have the power to live that way. Though we're not perfect now, your power is at work in us by the Holy Spirit, conforming us to the image of your son. And how often do we do what Ephesians 4 talks about, grieve the spirit of God. How often do we grieve your Holy Spirit because we still play around with the things of the old man and the old woman? We get lulled to sleep where we're ineffective and useless. That's all Satan needs us to be. He doesn't need to possess us. He just needs to keep us distracted with frivolous things and things that really don't matter. And if he can turn us against each other, that's even bigger win because Jesus has told us a house divided cannot stand. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm asking you to do what we cannot do. Let the onslaught happen, but we are not powerless. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places far above all power and rule and dominion and authority and every name that is named. We are yours and we are not alone. Your spirit is in us. May it show in the way we live our lives and the way we love our neighbors and the way that we proclaim this good news to a dark and dead world. In Jesus' name, amen.